Well, I just want to say on the microphone that uh, Bob and Ginny preached my sermon this morning. And I feel the other thing about the service this morning is how many times have we <coughs> heard the word faithfulness? Um, I want to say uh, we, we've been, the past two weeks, we've, we've been preaching about marriages and declaring God's word about marriage. And the message that the Lord's put on my heart this morning, he's told me he is very passionate about this message. I'm sure he's passionate about all the messages that are preached here. But, um, but this one is particularly close to his heart. Um, we're talking about marriages that inf- influence future generations. And um, talking about faith. And before, before I start, I want to say that this, this, uh, this word this morning is not about so much what kind of family you came from or grew up in. And it's not necessarily about what has gone on even in your marriage, in your married life up to this point. Um, and it, and it's, if you're single, if you've never been married, it's certainly applicable to you too. But... Um, God is passionate about passing on the faith. I want to start with a a story um, from our fourth grade reading book. Uh, I want to read it to you. Isaiah's not here this morning, but he knows the story. Um, It's called, Why the Old Man Planted Trees. A nobleman was once riding along the road and saw a very old man digging in his garden. Beside the old man, On the ground lay a sapling tree ready to be planted. The nobleman stopped to watch, and after a few minutes he called out to the old man, What kind of tree are you planting there, my good man? The old man wiped his brow and picked up the sapling. This is a fig tree, sir, he said. A fig tree, cried the astonished nobleman. Why, how old are you, may I ask? I am 90 years old, said the other. What, cried the nobleman, you are 90 years old and you plant a tree that will take years and years to give fruit? Why not, replied the old man. The nobleman pointed to the tree. Surely you don't expect to live long enough to get any benefit from the hard work you are doing with this sapling? The old man looked on on his shovel and looked around the garden. Then he smiled and said, Tell me, sir, did you have figs when you were a boy? Certainly, the nobleman sounded puzzled. Why? The old man smiled again. Then tell me this, he said, Who planted the trees from which those figs were picked? The nobleman hesitated. Why... Why, I don't know. You see, sir, the old man continued, our forefathers planted trees for us to enjoy, and I am doing the same for those who come after me. How else can I repay my debt for those who have lived before me? The nobleman was silent for a moment and then said, you are very wise, old man, and I have been foolish. Now, um, it's a nice thought to provide trees for the generations who come after us to enjoy. This is not an Arbor Day message. (laughs) Um, But of all the things that we appreciate from those who have gone before us and that we hope to give to those who come after us, what is the most important? Well, let's look at... Jesus expressed what was really important to him and what he was really concerned about. You remember this verse? Jesus said, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a crazy question. Jesus was saying, When I come back, am I going to find faith on the earth? That's, uh, but that, that's, what, what really Jesus was passionate about was faith. And Jesus doesn't lie. He doesn't ask stupid questions. 
He was asking that question, will he find faith on the earth? In light of, Jesus, of the story and Jesus' question, I want to ask another question. What is God's purpose for marriage? Uh, I think there are multiple purposes, good purposes for a godly marriage. Um, but I propose that perhaps the most important one in God's eyes is that through godly marriage, we pass on the faith to future generations. Um, in order to look at God's purpose for marriage, I want to look at the big picture. Go back to the beginning of the story. So we're going to go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. And uh, in that first chapter, God made man and woman. And what did he command them? Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Then in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord formed Eve out of the Adam's rib and brought her to him. Adam was pretty happy. That's how women got their name. He, he saw Eve and he said, Whoa, man. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, it's true. Um, and it says, the Bible says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The un this union between man and woman is imperative to fulfill God's purpose to fill the earth with godly offspring and rule it in righteousness. Uh, of course, biologically speaking, <laughs> but also spiritually speaking. Um, then in Genesis chapter 3, we know that Adam and Eve fell into sin and they were commanded to leave the garden. Um, but God, at that moment, when they sinned, we see the love of God that even as they sinned, God promised a Savior, right? In that little promise, a little seed of the gospel there, it said uh, that um, the, the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head and that he would strike his heel. It's a picture that, that Jesus was going to come and die on the cross and um, defeat sin and death. Um, tragically then, though, in chapter 4, their son Cain murdered his brother Abel. And uh, the remainder of chapter 4 lists a genealogy of Cain and his descendants. Uh, it includes a lot of great human accomplishments, but it also um, has more murder, violence, swears of vengeance. At the end of the chapter, it tells how God granted Eve another son, Seth, in place of Abel. I don't think that's all the sons they had. I think they had a lot of children because they, from them came the population of the earth. But um, Seth had a son named Enosh. The final verse of chapter 4 is very interesting. It says, At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Chapter 5 then gives us another genealogy, a second genealogy, that one of Adam's godly line through Seth and down to Noah and his three sons. So the two genealogies there. Now we don't know exactly that all of Cain's children were ungodly. We don't know that all of Seth's children were godly. Um, we see some evidence of things. But then in chapter 6 we read this verse. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, 
when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now this is kind of a weird verse to try to interpret. Okay, there are some people who have said, well, the sons of God took the daughters of humans to be their wives. They think, well, maybe the sons of God are angels, or maybe they're fallen angels, demons, and they created some kind of superhero children. Um, but that's, that's a really hard thing to understand, too, because it says that angels and demons are spirits. And actually, uh, one reason why, uh, I read an interesting article from Answers in Genesis about it. Um, one reason why that's, that's hard for me to believe is that Jesus actually, to prove his resurrection in the gospel, uh, Luke 24, I think it is, um, to his disciples, he said, uh, touch my hands, uh, see me eat some fish. You know that a spirit does not have flesh, as you see I have. And so he, you know, he basically s said, uh, hey, I'm resurrected, you can see, because I've got a body here. I've got flesh. Um, so what does that verse mean in Genesis 6? Um, I would say, um, my view is this, the, the sons of God are the godly men who called on the Lord and walked with him. The daughters of humans talks about women from the unbelieving line. Uh, in other words, the offspring who kept the knowledge of the Lord intermarried with the unbelievers. And the result is that just about the whole human race became unbelieving, violent, and wicked. In other words, they did not pass on the faith. They did not pass on the knowledge and relationship with God or his ways to their generation. And uh, here's how it continues then in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's really a sad state of affairs. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. That's about the saddest verse in the whole Bible, I think. Um, but, it, but it's true. And it kind of brings light to what Jesus said. He said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? But verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in my view, this explains why soon after that, soon after Noah, God saved him and his children and their wives. Soon after that, um, God chose Abraham. Why, did you ever wonder why did God choose Abraham? Why did he create one nation that was going to be his special people? I mean, is does it not say that God is no respecter of persons? Does God love some of the people he created more than he loves other people he created? No. No, God is just. God is righteous. He is loving towards all he has made. Um, why did God choose Abraham? Well, I, uh, I believe Abraham's family was God's vehicle to preserve and spread the knowledge of him in the world and his ways to the future generations. I almost look at it like this. At the beginning, God let man try to do it man's way, and it didn't work. The faith did not get passed on to the point where Noah and his family were the only righteous ones. And so after the flood, God said, I've got a plan. I'm going to choose my man, Abraham. Now, um, why did God choose Abraham? In Genesis 18, verses 18 and 19, God tells why. 
It says, Abraham, God is speaking. He's talking about uh, whether or not to talk to him about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose to make a nation out of his family? So that he would teach his household and the generations after him to keep the way of the Lord, to know the Lord. God has always been concerned about passing on faith and knowledge of him to the next generation. This was his main concern with Israel and much of the responsibility of this he put on families. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 9 is a famous passage. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. How many of you have the word of God written along the doorposts of your house? <laughs> the Jewish people did, right? Why? Because God commanded them to do it here. Now I think what God is saying is, hey, talk about me and put the knowledge of me foremost in your daily life and especially in your families because what is important is I need my people to know me. Evidently, things are stacked against us there is a devil in the world and there's our own sinful nature and there is a sinful system in the world that is all working against us knowing the Lord. God made us because he loves us and he wants us all to know him. And so as we read through the Old Testament, the big picture is this. God needs the knowledge of the truth and the faith to be passed on from generation to generation because it's imperative that we know him and have relationship with him and love him. And that's why he's, he's sent the Savior, Jesus. Um, you know, when, when the Lord brought his people into the promised land through after Moses, through Joshua, um, over and over, he commanded and warned them to constantly teach their children his laws and his ways. Uh, he made festivals. Why? Because God likes to party? Well, maybe so. But also, it was a teaching tool that these festivals would help them to remember the great deeds the Lord had done for Israel, for their ancestors, to remind the next generations of what God had done in the previous generations. Um, he set up sacrifices and symbolism to help them. Why? Because killing a sheep or a cow is going to take away your sins? No way. But it's to show them, how, first of all, that sin results in death. It's destructive. And that <clears throat> a spotless lamb was going to have to be sacrificed in order to take away sins. And that was not an animal lamb. That was Jesus and so all of that sacrifice and all of that ceremony they had to do is not because God is a religious God who's looking for ritual. It was to teach them. It was to show them who he was and remind them of the Savior that was to come. Um, he, he warned them not to forget him when they received his blessings in the promised land. Over and over, don't forget when you come into the land and you get all these new houses and all this stuff from the people that you killed, who I told you to kill to take over the land, and by the way, they killed them because 
because they were wicked people and their punishment was due. But um, when you get all that stuff, don't forget me. Don't think that you're okay and you can live your life without me. He, over and over, he was telling them, um, pass on the faith. Make sure you know me and my ways. Don't forget about me. Don't fail to pass on the faith. Be faithful to me. Um, here's a question. You might be single or married. I have questions for everybody. What are you doing to pass on the faith to future generations? Uh, in Deuteronomy, we just read all these creative ways to talk about the, the truth, to remember. God did all these things for Israel to help them to pass on the faith. What are we doing today to pass on the faith? Because I'll tell you, Jesus was genuinely concerned whether he would find faith on the earth. Not just on that day that he comes back, but on tomorrow and the next day, on this generation and the next generation. What are we doing to pass on the faith? Whether we're married or not, whether you are young, whether you are older, whether you've lived the majority of your life already, what are we doing to pass on the faith? Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 to 6 says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, here we go, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations long, larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must totally, you must destroy them totally. Sounds kind of harsh, right? <laughs> That's what he said, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Sounds a little bit strange coming from our God who we sang about, God of mercy. Didn't we just sing that this morning? Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Why did God say show no mercy? Because there was something at stake. He did not want future generations to be corrupted. The Lord wants the people that he created to know him. And he does have mercy on sinners, that's for sure. We all need his mercy. And he purchased it for all of us at the cross. But the thing is, those who threatened to take away the truth from future generations, he's pretty serious about. He does not want people to be cut off from knowing him. He wants the faith to be passed on. We're on verse five. This is what you are to do to them, the ungodly people, the ungodly culture they were going into. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Let's think about this. This is God talking to the Israelites, right? At that time. Is it, is it a word for us today? So then how could we apply this word to us in our situation and our culture today? Because there probably aren't too many Asherah poles standing around. We could cut down a telephone pole. <laughs> there aren't too many uh, altars to Baal for us to destroy. What is it talking about? Are there things that we can, quote, destroy so that they don't affect us and our children? and our children's children.
Are there things we need to cut off that are around us in our culture that are working against the knowledge of God in our lives, in our family's lives? A lot of things. <clears throat> in his retirement speech, after Israel had occupied much of the promised land, Joshua again challenged the people and reminded them to serve God and keep his covenant. This is from Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. You probably are familiar with some of these words. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That's a challenge for all of us today. We may still be living with old gods. And this is a call. This is like... If you are children of Bob and Ginny, that's awesome because they have passed down the faith to their children. But your parents may not have been like Bob and Ginny. But this is a call today that wherever you came from, time to cut off the idols. Time to cut off the unbelief and give your life to the Lord and set yourself apart for him. Like he said, you are a people Holy to the Lord, you are his treasured possession. Verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He, he threw down the gauntlet there, didn't he? But we have to. We have to. There, do you see that there is a choice there involved? And, if, and, and Joshua, I have to think, came from a godly family. But for him, there was still a choice. And for his children, there was a choice. And um, for us, there is a choice. All right. That's awesome. Same, same God then as now. They did, yeah. So, um, do you notice the importance of family in that statement? That he says, for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, I want to talk... There are things about our Western culture and society that work against us passing on the faith. And um, you think about that. What, what would our society to say? That somebody could say, yeah, me and my kids, we're Christians. We're going to serve the Lord. And I'll tell you what people would say. They'd say, how can you speak for your children? Some people would say, they're too young. They're too young. How can they know what they believe? Some people will say, how dare you try to tell them what to think and what to believe? Um, sometimes today in our, uh, there's three things about our society. It's individualistic. Uh, sure, all of us need to make that choice. We just said that. Everybody's got a choice. But the kingdom of God is not totally individualistic like our culture might be. God, God cares a lot about households and families. Look up the word households in the Bible and study it. Um, also, the, uh, we have this idea that sometimes that children must wait until they grow older to come to know the Lord. In, yeah, everybody needs to give their life to Jesus, but um, our rationalistic culture that's another thing about our culture, rationalism, sometimes confuses the idea that of between believing and being able to explain verbally <laughs> and rationally what, what you're believing in. And it's not the same because Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
That's Mark 10, 14, and 15. Our democratic culture, now I, I think that our form of government is a really good form of government, but the kingdom of God is not a democracy. Our democratic culture tells us that we can't tell other people, including our children, what to believe. That's not biblical. As parents, we are commanded to teach our children to know the Lord. Many Christians, you know, many Christians, perhaps a lot of you, didn't grow up in believing families. And you came to know the Lord later in life. Praise the Lord. But we have to understand that for us having children in our own families, that's not going to be the same. Our children are meant to have an advantage. They are meant to have a head start, so to speak. Right? Praise the Lord that he can pluck people out of a bad situation, and he does, and he wants to. But, but our, having Christian families, he wants our ceiling to be like their floor. You know what I'm saying? That's his goal for our families, that we will pass on the faith. And, you know, um, the Bible is full of heroes um, who it says are like that. Samuel, David, Timothy are a few good examples of young people who knew the Lord. You know, David and Timothy... It says they knew the Lord from when they were infants. It actually, even in the mother's womb, David suggests. Um, how could that be possible? Faith. Tell me, does, uh, does little Isaiah know who his mom is? Does he trust her? If Amy handed him to me, he would know the difference. Right? <laughs> I guarantee he wouldn't trust me because he doesn't know me but he does know his mother. Babies can trust, right? So what, what, I'm saying, what, what am I trying to say? I'm saying we need to teach our children from the earliest age to know the Lord. Amen. Yes, eventually they'll have to make their own choices as they live. Serving God is a lifelong adventure, but, but we need to teach them to know the Lord. Um, Tell you what, if we do not teach our children to know and love the Lord from a young age, the world will surely step in and lead them the other way. Uh, we see it in our own area, era, and it happened to the generation that followed Joshua uh, in Judges 2, 6-13. After listening to that beautiful speech that Joshua made at Bob and Jenny's wedding, no, it wasn't the, it wasn't the first time, no. Um, Here's another sad passage. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. That was the next generation. How did that happen? Joshua warned them, but they still failed to pass on the faith. A couple of years ago, some families from our church and school um, went through a a teaching series by Chip Ingram called Effective Parenting in a Defective World. It's a good series. If you can get it and watch it, that's, 
That's good. It will help us to do the things we're talking about today. But kind of the primary message, the thing that I remember the most about it is, is that they were saying, children will do what they see us doing. You know, you can teach them a lot of things, and we need to. I'm, t- I'm saying that this morning. But the biggest influence on their behavior and their belief is going to be our example to them. And that might be convicting to us. It it probably should be convicting to all of us. Um, That's okay. God can help us with that. But um, children are going to do what they see us doing, generally speaking. So the greatest way that we will influence future generations is by the example we set. For parents, this means that our marriage will teach and influence our children's faith even more than our words do. Listen to what the Lord says in Malachi about raising up godly offspring. Malachi 2, starting at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Listen to this answer. Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. How will the children believe that the Lord is a faithful, loving father if they see that their human father and mother are being unfaithful, unloving, and unkind to each other. Actions speak louder than words. I'm not trying to put uh, condemnation on anybody this morning, but because there is grace, there is forgiveness. But the choices that we make and the way we, the example we set in our marriages, maybe they're big things, maybe they're small things when we talk about being faithful and loving to one another, um, have an effect on our children. We live in a society full of temptation and examples of self- selfishness. We are not immune to temptation. One of the things that's alarming is, is pornography, how easily accessible it is. With the internet has come m- much more opportunity for temptation, and that hits the church. We're not just talking about the world. And, um, but I tell you, as Christians, we have the grace of the Lord Jesus, not just to forgive us for, of our sins, but to empower us to live for him. We have the Holy Spirit and his power living in us. So in that case, the thought for me to think that my response to temptation as a husband and as a dad is going to influence the lives and eternal destiny of my children, not only my children, but my grandchildren, and who knows how many generations after that it will influence, the decisions and choices I make as a husband, that's a very sobering stop sign for me. And I'm not saying do it by your sheer willpower. I'm saying we have the grace of God, we have the Holy Spirit living in us who empowers us to do just what he wants, what we should do. It causes me to run to my Lord and seek his grace to think to speak and to do the right and loving thing in my marriage, in my situation, whatever it be.
Amen? I don't know if you can, you can see, sin can get passed on from generation to generation. I know I see in myself sins that certain tendencies, weaknesses, if you will, or maybe we just call them sins, that maybe my mom or dad struggled with. Uh, if I knew my grandparents better than I did, probably I'd see stuff from them that I struggle with, right? But as, and praise God, as Christians, we have the grace and the power to cut that off. We don't have to walk in the sins of our parents because of the love of God, because of the grace of God. So we don't want to continue walking in them. We don't want to pass those things down to our children. We want to deal with them. And we sure don't want to start new ones to pass on to our children. Amen? So we need to walk in the grace of God as Christians. Not only this, our marriages present a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church to our children. Tom preached about this last week from Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, we husbands demonstrate who Christ is to our children. It says we are a picture of that. And wives demonstrate, I think, how we are to respond to the Lord. Ephesians five twenty-one to 27 says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Wow. Tom talked about that last week and, and the question is, which one of us is really up to that task? Which one of us men is able to demonstrate who God is, who Christ is, and love with the love of Christ? In ourselves, we don't have it. And, and what wife is able to submit to a husband as, as to the Lord? But once again, we are not in our own strength. The Holy Spirit lives in us if we, if we believe in him. And we have his grace, and that empowers us to do that. How do we access that? I mean, if, if each one of us are honest about everything we've talked about in this message, we've got some co conviction somewhere. And like I said, not condemnation. The Holy Spirit does not bring that to us. But conviction, yes. The fact that I need to change. And how do we access that? By repenting. That's the beginning, repenting and believing. Um, godly marriage and parenting is another part of our lives that we must bring to the cross in repentance to seek forgiveness and grace from Jesus. It's not too late. Amen? It's never too late. Wherever I don't know what a situation everybody here is in, but I, knew, I do know that we all have the same opportunity going forward. And that's what the Lord is speaking to us today. We've failed. Anybody that says they haven't failed at any of this is a liar. <laughs> We've all failed. But it's not too late. If we humble ourselves before the Lord, if we humble ourselves before our spouses, if we humble ourselves before our children, he will lift us up. He will pour his grace upon us. Do not be afraid to repent to your family members. Do not be afraid to repent to your children. 
That's one of the most powerful things we can do. If we will humble ourselves, we will reap the benefits of it. Um, okay, finally, if you're a parent who is divorced, or you're married to an unbelieving spouse, or maybe you're married to a spouse who's acting suspiciously like an unbeliever, um, or maybe just sometimes acts like an unbeliever, uh, don't feel discouraged or condemned about your situation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 12, Paul writes that a believing parrot brings a sanctifying influence to his or her children. Here's what he says. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, listen to this, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What's it talking about? Are you saved just because you're born into a certain family? Well, no. Do you, have, do you as parent have an influence? An authority? A sanctifying influence over your children because of your faith in God? Yeah, you do. Because you belong to him. He cares about your children. You see, God is not a God of individuals. God is a, well, he is a God of individuals, but he's also a God of families. And um, it, what, I'm, what I really want to say here is, if, if your spouse is not walking with the Lord, if your spouse is not with you anymore, don't be discouraged. Because... God is not the God who's going to leave your children out in the cold. He's going to cover you. And if he's covering you, he's going to cover your children. He's given you that influence. He's given you that authority to teach your children to know him so that they can embrace him themselves. I just want to finish with a rhetorical question, a question to think about. Just how great of an influence does God want to exert on future generations through you, through your life, through your marriage? That'd be a question to talk to the Lord about. That's a question to talk to your spouse about sometime after this. That's a question to pray about. Let God put on your heart I think that's one of the greatest purpose. There are a lot of good things about marriage, but to pass on the faith is something that maybe God is most passionate about and one of the reasons why he's brought you and your spouse together. If you're a young person and you're thinking about getting married, maybe you're not thinking about getting married, but sometime years and years from now you will, remember this. How many times did we read that you need to marry somebody who's a believer? Don't marry somebody who's not a believer. That will not be a happy thing in the end. God has grace, yes. But that's not, that's not what he told the people of Israel to do. And in uh, the New Testament says, don't be yoked with unbelievers. Don't do that on purpose. Um, God wants to pass on the faith. And he's able to do it through his people. And he's especially able to use your marriage to do that. Let's come before him now. Maybe the worship team can come up. And um, like I said, I know I've failed in some ways. We all have. Let's come before the throne of grace. We've got a father who loves us the reason why he's so passionate about this is because he wants to spend eternity with each one of us he wants 
not to only spend eternity with me and my wife. He wants to spend it with my children, my grandchildren. He wants to spend eternity with the people who you know in your daily life who may not be your children or somebody else's children, but they might be your spiritual children. He's given you influence on them. Let's come before the cross and ask for his grace. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. That you paid the price. You paid the ultimate price. Jesus gave his life so that we could be brought back to you, so that we could be members of your family. And Father, we come before you and Lord, we repent for the ways that we have not passed on the knowledge of you to our children, the ways that by our own actions we have betrayed what we say we have believed. Please forgive us. Father, we pray that your kingdom will come that your will be done in our family lives, in our marriages, that you would make us lights and beacons of salvation to the next generation and the one to come beyond that, and who knows how far beyond that. Lord, we pray that when Jesus returns, that he will find faith on the earth, that he will find faith in our families, in our ancestors, and that we will exert our influence all around us in our culture, in our society, in this nation. Lord, we offer ourselves um, to be your mouthpieces, to spread your truth here on the earth, that we will be that vehicle. We are the children of Abraham, and that we are here to spread salvation to be faithful to you and let faithfulness spring up from the earth as your love is always coming down reaching out to us Lord we thank you for your love in Jesus name Amen